uh, here at the 8.30 service this morning for Easter. Y'all are like the, the women who ca- got to the tomb first before the rest of the disciples. Y'all like, y'all rocking it out, so y'all are the first to, first to know, first to share. Um, also, this has become like the last couple years, this has become a yearly tradition. Just a reminder for you around, around this time of year is I know there's a lot of candy out there. Um, just a reminder that peeps are proof that we live in a world broken by sin. Uh, they're disgusting, and um, <clears throat> Reese's peanut butter eggs are proof that, that God loves us, and the resurrection is, re- is real and true. Um, so just to, <laughs> and that he graciously wants to share all good things with us. Hey, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, because we're going to talk about that today, I mean, it's Easter, so of course that's going to be the topic. When we talk about that, we're not just talking about a strongly held belief that we have that just kind of gets us through life and, and helps us. Uh, you know, the way that we think about things and the way that we interact with people and the way that we deal with life. But we're talking about a a real-life historical event that actually took place that changes the course of human history. And so we're going to be talking about some very, especially over the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about some very specific interactions that that Jesus has with people that, that just shows how what Jesus does with his life and his death, burial, and resurrection is not meant to just be an idea that just kind of helps us through in life, but a practical application that we participate in our lives, and it changes everything for us. That Jesus being a living sacrifice is meant to uh, change how our souls experience the weight of sin and the consequence of, of death and how it changes everything. And so I figure since it's Easter Sunday and it's springy this morning, you know, balmy 32 degrees when I left the house, uh, this morning. We keep it light and breezy, and we talk about shame this morning, if that's cool with you. Is, what? That, I didn't expect that reaction at all. Uh, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 8, if you want to turn there in your Bible. And I figured that the best way to start off talking about shame is to tell you some stories about other people that they should be ashamed of. Is that cool? No, I'm just kidding. I won't, I won't do that. Uh, my kids maybe got a little nervous just then. Um, I would never. I would never. Uh, But I am going to tell you something that I'm ashamed of about myself that I've never told anyone. I've never told my wife this. She doesn't know the story. Nobody nobody knows the story except for one person who was with me at the time that happened. And I don't hang out with them anymore, so I'm hoping that they've forgotten this. Or this is the story that they always tell (laughs) about me. Oh, you know that guy? He one time. Um, And I know that some of you will think less of me, and I'm, I'm okay with that. So about 24, 25 years ago, so think punk teenager, as you, I'm sure it'd be easy for you to imagine me as a punk teenager. Um, and I'm driving with a friend and we're going to a restaurant and we pull into, uh, pull into the parking lot and of course I'm looking for a parking space. And so I'm going along and I see a good parking space is right at the beginning and so I, I, take, I take my 87 Forerunner, and maybe I shouldn't say that, is the statute of limitations up? I don't know. Um, and, and so I pull and I turn into the parking space and I miss. Now, the thing you need to know about missing is I'm not just talking about missing the parking space. Um, That that I did miss, uh, but what I didn't miss was the van parked right next to that parking space that that I was turning into. Now, I'm ashamed of this for a couple of different reasons. One is I like to think of myself as having fairly decent hand-eye coordination. Um, so I played sports a lot, even played, you know, some video games where you have to drive cars and that kind of thing and, and done pretty well on, on those kinds of things. Like I can catch a ball, generally speaking, when it's thrown to me and I know it's coming. Um, and and I, I was pulling into a parking space and I hit this van. Um, but that's not all that, that happened. So I hit the van, I back up a little bit and I can tell on, on this door 
Somebody's like, 25 years ago, somebody hit my van. And, um, and I looked, and, and you could tell that was tagged. All right, so I hit it. So here, here's what I did, punk teenager, right? I looked at it, and I, just processing and thinking, I'm, I'm going to ignore this happened. So, um, so I pull into the parking space right next to the van that I just hit. I get out, I go into the restaurant. It gets worse. So sitting there and I'm eating, you know, because you go through like, well, I don't know who this was and I don't know how to find out. I don't want to go in the restaurant, make an announcement, you know, all those kinds of things. You go through that, that kind of stuff. I'm sitting there and I'm eating and I watch this family walk out and they head right to the van and the kids are getting in and all that kind of stuff. And then the dad kind of looks and he's like, what in the world? You know, you can kind of see, see this talking. So I saw who it was that I hit um, and I didn't go out and say anything. I can feel the judgment. I have never told anybody that story up until this point. You guys, you guys are the first ones. And depending on how you treat me after the service will determine whether or not I share this with second service. <laughs> um, and and I, feel, I feel deeply ashamed uh, about that. It's not a proud moment at all, one that I've, I, you know, I haven't told anybody this before, right? So I'm still kind of processing even sharing that right now. Every time I notice a little ding on our vehicles and I get upset, like somebody's opened their door and into our door, that kind of thing, I remember that. I remember that story. I got rear-ended a couple years ago in our CRV, um, and, and I didn't, didn't take the insurance information from the person or anything like that because I remember that time that I hit, hit that van. And then I noticed later that we have a good-sized dent in the back behind our tire that I never noticed before. And I'm like, oh, I should have gotten that stuff. And then I remember, oh, no, you were that jerk punk teenager that let fear and shame keep you from doing the right thing. Because the thing for me was I, I, knew, um, I, I knew that I did something wrong. All right, so, so just... So kids, just so you know, like that's a wrong thing to do, and, and what I did was wrong, and you shouldn't do that. And so the guilt was there. We feel guilty because I know I, know I did something, something bad, and, and the worst way for us to move through guilt is to lie about it um, because the only person we're fooling is ourselves, and we, we aren't honest about what we're guilty of. We harden our hearts in order to maintain the false narrative we created for ourselves. And here's the thing. I know, I know some of you are thinking how embarrassing for them, but the other thing that I know is that I'm in very good company this morning. Because I know more than, more than just me has had some things that they're ashamed of in their, in their life that, that they're done, um, I, that they've done. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's, that's the case, that I'm in good, good company. Um, and if you can't think of anyone, anything that you've done that you should be ashamed about, there's probably somebody sitting next to you that could let you know of something. Um, so, you know, careful with the elbows this morning. But the shame I feel because of the thing that I did wrong has always been that I've taken on the idea or the identity that I'm a terrible human being for having done that. I know some of you are like, well, yeah, you are. (laughs) You're a terrible punk teenager for doing that. And there's an important distinction there between guilt and shame. Because when I've done something bad and I deal with the guilt, I know I can do something about that. I know I can make amends. I I know I can apologize. Like the guilt of me hitting that van, I I know I could have gone to somebody and talked to them, exchanged insurance, made sure it was taken care of and and done right. But because I didn't do that thing, then I introduced shame into my life. And when I'm ashamed, there's something I'm recognized that's broken at the core of my being. And it's existing within me. And if not dealt in a proper, healthy way, it leads to my feeling as though I'm not worthy of receiving healthy love or belonging. And that's the thing that I've carried with me for so long and will continue to deal with and struggle with, with decisions that I've made like that in my life. I know this may be a shocker, but there's more than one thing that I'm ashamed of, and there's some things that I'm not willing to share with, with you. 
This is especially poignant when the thing that we feel shame about isn't even something that we've done. Because sometimes the shame that we carry with us are things that are done to us from other people. And when we silently carry secret shame over things that we've done and things that have been done to us, it becomes a barrier to the love and community that God desires for us and that Jesus makes possible through his death and resurrection. So we come together on Resurrection Sunday to celebrate a historical event, not just some ethereal idea that's just kind of out there that we just kind of grasp. It's not just a metaphor. Jesus died a brutal death to take away the sin of the world, and his resurrection is what ensures that the consequences of our sin are no longer permanent existential crises in our life or crises. Jesus' disciples had given up after his death. And then we're willing to give up everything about who they were and what they did when they saw Jesus, when they spoke to, when they ate with, when they were touched by, when they touched Jesus alive again. They put the life of Jesus into practice in their own lives once they saw that not even death could hold him in the grave. Because Jesus had become a living sacrifice, not just a dead one. And therefore the power that God extends through Jesus to change our lives becomes limitless it's not limited by the things that we've held on to, the things that we've done, the things that we carry with us in secret shame. But it doesn't work if we just leave Jesus on the pages of the Bible and not put those practices, those practical um, changes in our life into practice through the resurrection. The power of Jesus' resurrection goes as far as we're willing to live it out in our lives. It's one thing to say that the resurrection of Jesus destroys the hold of sin over our life. It's a whole other thing to practice the ways in which the power of Jesus overcomes and transforms the way in which sin affects us. And shame is one of the more insidious results, byproducts of sin in our life that we participate in. It corrupts our thinking in ways that we answer ourselves when we ask the question, what's wrong with me? And, and we don't have a response for that, and we don't have the power to do anything about that response in our life. When, when left undealt with, it negatively impacts every single area of our life. And yet we are God's created children with whom he desires an unbroken relationship. Shame keeps us at arm's length from him because it perpetuates the belief that there are things about who we are that fundamentally disqualifies us from belonging in a relationship with God. And, and some of that actually might be true because of our sin. But because of what God does through Jesus, that's meant to change everything about that. The painful irony in this is that our shame so often keeps us from going to the one person who could help us heal from that shame in a healthy way. We prolong the pain because we subconsciously think that we need to clean ourselves up. Or perhaps more, off, more often that we need to suppress or ignore before we can fully engage in healthy relationships. But this isn't how God intends for us to experience the renewal of life that Jesus' resurrection makes possible. One of the many great examples of this, as I mentioned before, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8 this morning. One of the many great examples of this is in Luke chapter 8. We also find it in Mark chapter 5, and Matthew devotes a couple verses to it in Matthew chapter 9. A crowd of people had formed around Jesus as he had come into town, and a local religious leader, a leader in the synagogue named Jairus, had come up to Jesus and said, hey, my, my daughter's dying. Um, can you please come? And by this time, Jesus has a reputation as being a healer. And so he's sought after by this really important person, and Jesus says, okay, let's go. And so there's a crowd of people that are coming along, uh, alongside of him. And in Luke chapter 8, verse uh, 42 uh, Luke says the crowd is crushing him. I mean, that's, that's how tightly people are packed around him because they want to see what's going to happen and, and, and they probably want to experience um, what, what Jesus is going to do in this situation. 
And as they're moving along, we pick up in Luke chapter 8, verse, verse 43, and we have just, just this little footnote. As Jesus is going on to interact with this really important person in the community, we have this little footnote over a few verses, and here's what happens. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. And when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out for me. Um, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of uh, detail here about what's going on with this woman. I mean, she's, she's suffering from uh, continual menstrual bleeding, okay? And because of this, her status in her community, socially, her status spiritually, when it came to being a part of worship in the local synagogue and all those kinds of things, um, was, uh, was an untenable position. So for 12 years, this woman had been considered unclean. Uh, what that means is basically she was treated like an outcast. Um, she was not able to be in relationship with someone. Uh, it's very likely that this would have kept her from being married. If she was married, it probably meant that her husband divorced her at some point. It would have meant that she couldn't have children. All of these things would have been dings against her socially. Uh, it would have meant that she couldn't have participated in worship fully because she wasn't supposed to come into contact with people. She wasn't supposed to come into the holy spaces that had been created for worship with, with God. And so this woman has, for 12 years, has been on the outside, has been carrying this thing that has kept her separate and alone from everyone else. And deeply, um, deeply stuck alone in that shame, out of desperation, she comes to Jesus. She hears about his reputation. She doesn't try to stop him. She doesn't try to draw attention to herself. But she tries to fight through the crowd, the people who are crushing in around him. And just if she can just touch a piece of his clothing... She thinks, maybe that will finally work. And the crazy thing is it does. She was that woman who everyone would avoid, and while she had done nothing wrong, she was alone. But she finally, she finally reached out for the one thing that could change everything. Not the one thing, the one person who could change everything. Jesus is the answer to the shame of our sin. Faith in him is the only requirement to heal spiritually. And that's the thing that she finally experienced when she reached out for Jesus. This woman, in, in Mark chapter 5, he gives us a little bit more details in verse 26. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. She had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. In other words, she tried everything over 12 years out of desperation. And there are all kinds of crazy remedies that would have existed at that time where, you know, old wives' tales, you know, that, that kind of thing that she would have tried. She gave up everything that she had, sold everything, just because this is how much, how deeply her shame had impacted her in her life. It had kept her from anything that she would have been able to experience that was good and healthy and holy affection in her life. And so she, out of desperation, she had gotten rid of everything. This was her last-ditch last ditch effort. Everything that the world had to offer, she had tried. And... And there's so many people that are doing the same thing in their life now. 
The, the way our culture operates with, with shame and guilt and those kinds of things in our life, I mean, the, there's some healthy ways in which shame is being talked about in a pop, pop culture way, um, and, and that's great. Like, sometimes you'll see some things on social media or somebody on YouTube that might be somewhat popular, um, but, but they really don't deal with the core of what shame actually, actually does and how it affects us. Like, sometimes people take that and they say, hey, well, you just, just kind of need to be strong in that and live out your truth in the midst of that. The problem is, is that our, our truth doesn't, doesn't actually deal with the problems that our sin has created or the sin that other people have, um, have done against us to create that moment of shame in our life. It's, it's not until we lay those things down completely and give them up, lay them down at the foot of the cross, that, that Jesus does away with them for, for all eternity because that's what he does through the death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus takes sin and shame on himself. He destroys it at the cross and gives us new life through the resurrection. And so this woman came and she said, hey, I've tried everything else that this world has to offer. Maybe Jesus is the one who can heal me. And that faith that she exercises in that moment actually works because Jesus really is who he says he is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one else can approach God but through him. And so she reaches out to him in faith and it works, she is healed. And in this moment, power going out from Jesus, it doesn't just happen just because you bump into him. Remember the crowds are, are crushing into him. You, know, you think you're walking down the road, you brush shoulders with Jesus and you're like, oh, I'm healed. You know, no, no longer have to take thyroid medication. Or, oh, you know, oh, this is great, my pinky. All of a sudden I can straighten it now. Um, that, would, that would be cool. I just happened to bunch, uh, you know, run into him. This woman reached out with intention and conviction that only Jesus could do what was needed to heal her. She tried everything else. Shame so often keeps us reaching out, keeps us from reaching out to the person that we need to in that moment. And when it comes to our sin and our shame, and we talk about the, the historical event of, uh, event of the resurrection, what Jesus does in this, like this, this is proof that Jesus is the only one that we can reach out that will actually deal with these things in our life. She finally grasped out in faith to the one um, whom, you know, really she had been taught was punishing her for her sin and unworthiness. And that's what people were saying about, about this problem in her life. It's like, well, there's probably some hidden sin in your life. There's probably some hidden sin from your parents or, or your grandparents or something like that. And that's why God is punishing you with this thing that you're afflicted with. That's, that's not the case at all, though. It had kept her from reaching out to the one who could actually heal her. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 11, he says, As Scripture says, anyone who believes in God will never be put to shame. When we truly place faith in Jesus... Um, you know, we, we can't be healed from the past until we turn to the only person who can heal us. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just stop at, at her physical healing. As great as that is and worth giving God glory for, um, that still isn't the most important thing that Jesus does in this interaction. He doesn't change what has happened to her, so he doesn't erase the past. But he does give her what she needs in order to experience the whole life renewal the resurrection comes to bring. So we'll go back to Luke chapter 8, verse 46. Jesus says, someone touched me. I know that the power has gone out from me. And this is after everybody's denied it. So everybody's saying, no, we didn't touch you. Or Peter's like, come on, everybody's touching you. What, are you. what are you talking about? But he just stops. Meanwhile, Jairus' daughter is dying. And he's desperate. He's like, come on, come on, Jesus. Like, there's more important things to do. Let's, let's keep going. Like, this, the, like, come on, somebody touched you. It's fine. Let's keep going. But Jesus stops. And he waits. And then we pick up in verse 47. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him 
and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So here's this woman. She comes in her secret shame. She doesn't want to tell anybody what's going on. She doesn't admit what has happened to her. And yet Jesus stops in this moment. It's even more important than the physical healing that, that she had. And, and Jesus forces her into, you know, the best thing ever in her life has just happened. And now it's the worst thing ever. He's like, now come up and uh, share your story with everybody. And she's like, no, I don't want to talk about that. And yet this process was even more important for her in her continued healing in her life. Because now the thing that had kept her, kept her away from everybody that she had been holding on to herself, now it was out. Now she had, in vulnerability, shared what her shame was. And that removes so much of the power of what, how shame holds us back. She tried to go unnoticed, and yet Jesus, Jesus believed that she was important enough to stop everything and to say, no, let's, let's deal with this problem once, once and for all. She was healed, but she was still filled with shame. And so Jesus, Jesus helped her to move through that and move past that. And what would otherwise be a humiliating experience, Jesus draws attention to this woman so she could be free of the weight that she had been suffering alone with. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 48, there's a couple things that Jesus says here at the very end. First is he calls her daughter. Um, this is really significant because Jesus doesn't single anyone else like this out in Scripture. So here we have this little, little footnote interaction that Jesus has on his way to go do something else for a more important person. And yet Jesus calls her out in such a way that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't single anyone else out like this. He calls her daughter. And I want you to imagine, after 12 years of being ignored and being separate from any kind of, any kind of affection, any kind of a relationship, what, what this means for what God ultimately desires for us. It wasn't so much about the physical healing, but it's about the spiritual healing, this mental, emotional healing that Jesus provides in this moment that was so deeply impactful that shows the power of the resurrection that Jesus will accomplish just a little further on down the road in his life. He calls her daughter. Um, I, I can't imagine when the last time somebody had, had called her something pleasant in her life was. Um, it's, it's very likely that her parents had kind of ostracized her as well. So when was the last time she had had anybody call her that? Probably wasn't her mom and dad. No loving affection from, you know, possibility from a husband or a friend or anyone else. And Jesus stops and he says, hey, this is, this is what God ultimately desires with us. Is that he doesn't want us to be separate from him in any way. We are his children. He created us and he wants to be in relationship with us. And this is how Jesus treats us when it comes to our shame. This is how God treats us when it comes to the shame of our sin or the sin done against us or, or just the sin that is a part of our life because we live in a broken world. When we humble ourselves before God, Jesus redeems our shame and offers us a resurrected life. And so he just forces this woman to stop hiding, to be vulnerable, and to share what, what had happened. And that so much removes the power of sin and shame in our life. Your first reaction ever to, to sin was shame. It was Adam and Eve in the garden hiding from God because they were ashamed of their nakedness. And then we contrast that with Jesus who hang, hangs on a cross naked for the entire world to take on the sin and shame of the entire world and do away with that forever. Vulnerability is not a weakness. Being able to talk about 
the things that we're ashamed of and how Jesus transforms that shame with trusted people and is, is an expression of health, an expression of healing and faith. Shame is one of those things where it's an important indicator for us to recognize that something is off and needs to, needs to be dealt with, not to be held onto in secrecy. Laying our shame at the feet of Jesus, ultimately, it brings us peace. And this is the final thing that Jesus says to her. He says, go in peace. And the idea of peace that we think about, sometimes we think about peace and quiet. But the idea that Jesus has in mind is that of shalom. Um, and that is, that is completeness. And that is wholeness. And, and he doesn't say that after she's been healed physically. He says that after she's brought her shame, she's brought her vulnerability to the surface and has allowed Jesus to deal with that. And he said, now, now you can go in peace. Now you can go in wholeness. Now you can go in completeness. This is what the resurrection accomplishes despite the fear and shame of our sin. I, I just want to read uh, a passage from Ephesians chapter 1, and this is from Paul to the church at Ephesus, and him talking about, talking about the resurrection, and this is what he says. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And so there's a couple things for us, to, for, for us to do and to apply in our life, to apply the power of resurrection in our life. The first thing is this. If you're a disciple of Jesus, um, we're called to be in relationships with people in which we can deal with our shame head on with each other. Uh, when we say things like, no perfect people allowed, no one stands alone, everyone's story matters, we can say those things as a church, but they don't become real until we put those things into practice in our lives with each other. And so we're meant to be the trusted people in which we can deal with our sin and shame and put into practice the healing that Jesus offers through his resurrection. We're called to be those types of people for, for other people. We're called to be like Jesus for, for people in our lives that, that have hidden things, that have things that they don't feel like they can share, that things that either they've done or that have been done to them. And we need to be the trusted people for others so they can experience the healthy healing from shame that God offers to all of us. And so I just want to encourage you, and, and that, could look, that, could look, uh, we, that could look like any number of things and any number of types of relationships. That could look like our relationships that we have with family members. It could be people at work. It could be people or friends. We, we're called to be the trusted people where, where shame can finally be defeated and done with because Jesus already dealt with that at the cross. And so we're called to help one another bear those burdens, to be able to take, help people take those to the, for the cross and, and lay them down. And the second thing I'll, I'll say uh, is, is this. If you've been holding on to what you've done or what's been done to you, you're invited to lay down your shame at the foot of the cross. That's what Jesus, this is part of what Jesus came to deal with through his death and resurrection. You know, the next step for you might be talking with someone honestly about why you haven't said yes to Jesus yet. It might be dealing with a deep-rooted shame of the past. It might, be, um, it might be some other next step 
in faith. It might be something like baptism where, you know, the representation, the symbolic representation of that and the death burial of Jesus is the washing away of these things where they no longer have, have power over us. Um, at Velocity, we believe, I believe, we believe, we're supposed to be the type of church community that you can deal with those things here. Um, welcomed, despite our shame. By the way, I haven't hit a car since. Um, knock on press board. Um, but love too much for us to be stuck in it. When we share our story of how Jesus heals our shame and weakness, we celebrate the joy of resurrection in a real, tangible way. And we move from Jesus just being kind of an idea on paper to an actual real person who really did raise from the dead to become a living sacrifice for us so that the power of sin could be done away with. Let's pray. God, we, uh, as we celebrate the resurrection, we celebrate how, how it really does change and transform our life. And God, we, uh, we ask that through your Holy Spirit, you might, you might guide us into how we, we can serve others and helping them heal from, from their shame, um, how we might be able to lay, lay our shame down and, and to exchange that heavy burden for the lighter good one that you offer to us through following Jesus. God, we, we honor you and we praise you, we glorify you, we thank you for a brand new life that comes even after, even after death. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.